Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 5th, 2022. It's a Saturday. We don't always do shows on a Saturday, but this is not sure if it's a special Saturday. It's a dark Saturday. And of course, the news is dominated by the Ukraine. Um, New York Times headlines this morning, Putin threatens Ukraine's statehood amid mass exodus. Uh, FT headlines, uh, Ukraine calls off the Mariupol evacuation and accuses the Russians of violating ceasefire. Uh, the journal is the same. Um, the Russian, uh, the Ukrainian-Russian agreement on evacuating the civilians a collapse. Um, CNN, as always, tends to uh, make it slightly more dramatic and personal. According to CNN, Putin dials up threats against the Ukraine and its allies. It's in many ways a war of words, a war of propaganda, and there are very few people who have predicted this more accurately, more chillingly than my guest today on the show. He's an old friend. He's been on the show a couple of times before. I actually was with him in Washington, D.C. a couple of months ago. Peter, Peter Pomerantsev, his, um, many of you will know him from his book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. His latest book is This Is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality. Uh, Peter is joining us from Washington, D.C., where he's currently living, but he is originally from the Ukraine, and uh, many of his family members are there. Peter, uh, thank you so much for, for giving me some time on your, your busy Saturday. Is this essentially now a propaganda war in the way you read it? Um, no, it's it's a very real war on on the ground. Um, um, well, I mean, obviously, it is a, a military war as well. But is this going to be determined by uh, which? Well, not which propaganda, but whether we can actually counter Putin's propaganda? No, no, Putin has stopped caring about propaganda. He he he's doing propaganda of the deed. He wants to show. Well, his propaganda, his propaganda is already saying, you guys can win the information war. I don't care. I'm going all the way to Paris. That's the new joke in pro-Putin circles. Uh, a couple of Russian officers are sitting in Paris with Paris captured and going, well, we lost the information war. So what are you saying, Peter, that we shouldn't, I mean, all your work on propaganda on the internet and all that stuff, it's kind of irrelevant now? No, it's, it's it's not irrelevant at all. But um, uh, Putin is is um, is is trying to um, trying to show. I suppose you could say that's propaganda. It depends where you draw the line. But 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 this is clearly not a um, you know, this is not a sort of a grey zone operation like his previous ones where he was trying to be ambiguous. Um, he's invaded another country and he's daring the world to do something about it. And we're not really. And um, in that sense, he probably thinks he's winning. I had a piece just published on um, Literary Hub, Go Fuck Yourself, on Putin's propaganda in the week in Ukrainian resistance. Uh, I wasn't actually writing about Putin's propaganda. That was the subtitle of the, of, of the piece. But it's basically, as you say, about the way in which Putin has got away, quite literally, with murder. Um, and my piece suggests, and we'll get into this a little bit, that we have some accountability for this. Do, do you agree? I mean, have we basically bent over for him 
Well, I think we have to understand what, what he's doing. This is not just about Ukraine. He has a, you know, a very sort of destructive and maybe we'll find out self-destructive obsession with Ukraine, which we can deconstruct. Um, it's very, very sick. But, but, you know, listen to what he's saying. If we're going to talk about propaganda, um, listen to what his, his propaganda says, what he says. He doesn't just talk about Ukraine. He talks about America obsessively. He's trying to undo 1989, which for him is a huge humiliation when America led the Cold War allies in their defeat of the Soviet Union and in the victory of democracy over dictatorship. He's always talking about how his most humiliating moment is uh, 1989 when he's a KGB officer in Dresden having to burn KGB files as the pro-democracy crowds gather outside. And, and look, his propaganda, and I, I think it must reflect his worldview as well, is that Ukraine, Paris, London, Berlin are all puppets of the US. You know, none of these countries are real countries. Yeah? They're all puppets of the US. You guys are the puppet master. And therefore, he needs to humiliate and embarrass you the way he was humiliated and embarrassed in 1989. So his intent is you. Ukraine is the first one that he takes. You know, you thought you had a, a pretty friend in Ukraine. Look at your pretty friend now to show the world that it's not worth even being friends with the US because this is how the US treats its friends. And then he will test um, the US in the Baltics, in Poland, in the Black Sea, basically to show that the US, the US's promises to the world as a guarantor of stability are, are a lie. And ultimately he wants, if he can, program maximum, is the US out of Europe, so you know he can dominate Eastern Europe the way he believes is Russia's right. Now, how far he gets in that plan is, is completely different because he's a man who's lost his touch with reality. He's making decisions based on poor evidence. So, so he, he probably won't get that far. But, but you have to be clear as to what his intent is. It's not about Ukraine, it's about you guys. So to the war extent, are you guys standing up to him? I don't know. I think Biden's made one speech about this. He should be on TV every day. Um, I mean, the, the sanctions are well coordinated, but actually the EU is doing much better than America or Britain. I think the EU got triggered. I think Germany got triggered essentially by Putin's behavior, brought back a lot of unpleasant memories. And um, so not doing a bad job, but but if we think we're killing it, then we're certainly not. You did a you wrote a piece last week uh, in for the Gar uh, for the Observer. What's going on inside his head? Are you suggesting he's thinking like a a gangster, like a a mafia leader in this sense, or well, uh, just you know, he's thinking like 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 all these um, realist political scientists do in 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 Washington D.C. That you know all this stuff about liberal world order is nonsense, and might is right, and I will prove it to you. I mean. You, Gangsters think like that as well, but so does, you know, so does John Mearsheimer. I mean, so do sort of, you know, most people in Washington, D.C. who subscribe to a worldview very similar to Mr. Putin's. And so uh, are you suggesting that the Mearsheimer-Putin line essentially has undermined most liberal internationalist thought around the world, particularly in the United States, as it made it essentially redundant and absurd and that these people have some if not accountability or responsibility, but they need to change their mind. Sorry, Andrew, I didn't quite understand who needs to change their mind, Putin or liberal internationalists? The liberal internationalists, no, well, clearly Putin isn't going to change his mind. <laughs> uh, and I don't think he'll be watching this, but there will be liberal internationalists, I hope, watching this, Peter. 
Well, no, it's just you have to. I mean, I, I, I'm very much a liberal internationalist. I just think it's something that has to be defended um, because the world is is sort of very, very bad actors who have a very different worldview, and we can call them gangsters, but but they'll just call themselves realists. Um, so, um, so it's something that has to be defended, and we have to understand how far we're going to defend it. Currently, you know, this is being fought out in Ukraine, and currently we've done sanctions, but let, let's be very clear about the sanctions. They're, they we haven't touched what matters to Putin. So far, all this is cosmetic to him. Until it's, we touch oil and gas, it's, it's a joke. He's laughing at us. He's like, ha, 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 you did some sanctions, but you didn't touch my main, the engine of my economy. So, so you know, like, it's great the sanctions are happening. I'm not criticizing them. I'm, and, and some of them are very clever. And, you know, the, the undermining of the central bank is, 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 is very smart. But, but, but he doesn't care until he touches oil and gas. And we've created, you know, even the SWIFT ban, the ban to use SWIFT transactions, which is a symbolic move, has a cutout for all the major Russian banks and has a cutout for oil and gas. So, you know, you realize how this is being treated in Russia. It's being treated as a joke. Um, so, you know, that's that's the situation. We haven't, we haven't gone anything as hard as we would like to think we've gone. Um, and of course, I mean, I, I, can, I can see we're giving some weapons to Ukraine but we need to be arming them much, much more. We're clearly not going to defend their skies because we're intimidated by Putin's nuclear rhetoric. Okay. But um, we should be giving them all the... Should we be intimidated, Peter? You wrote a piece uh, for Time a couple of days ago on his use of this nuclear rhetoric. I mean, why is he using it? And is he in any way serious? At what point? I mean, he can can threaten it. At a certain point, we have to push back, don't we? So... To be perfectly frank, I'm always cautious about talking about stuff I don't know anything about. So I'm not an expert on on military brinksmanship and nuclear. And I see a lot of very, very serious people say, look, this is a line we cannot cross. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I defer to people who know more about you know, the nuclear balance of power than I do. But if we're not going to do a new no-fly zone in Ukraine, which I don't think we will, then we have to empower them to defend their own skies. That means giving them all the planes that they need quickly, giving them all the anti-aircraft machinery that they need. It means just pushing that much, much harder and much, much faster. We should have been doing it for seven years, let's be honest. We really let them down. Thomas Sedlacek, the Czech economist, was on the show last week talking about using sanctions or fighting, fighting a war as sanctions. You're suggesting that really can't be done then? Or we're certainly not doing it at the moment. I think, no, I think a lot can be done. And, and, and I'm sure military theorists will have a, a field day looking at this war. Because on the one hand, it's David versus Goliath. On the other hand, we're trying to help David in, in many ways with economic warfare. You know, it's economic warfare, but, but it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty, pretty weak brew so far. Uh, it's more than we've had before, so it feels huge. But we're still not touching like, like sort of like the kernel, the nuclear reactor of his well, What is the nuclear reactor then? Oil. Oil, oil and gas. Oil and gas. So just yeah, shutting... That's 50% of his economy. We haven't touched it. But I was talking to a friend of mine in the oil and gas business, a futures dealer, who said to me that all he'll do it is, is, is redirect the oil and gas somewhere else, and then it will be resold back into the West. Can this actually be done? So I'm not the economics expert. He will no doubt do that with all the products that he wants. But, you know... Let's, let's, I mean, the, there is an oil embargo out there. Remember, Iran has an oil embargo on it, so it can be done. Um, so, but if we want to have that conversation, let's get a bunch of sanctions experts on. But 
clearly it's been done before in the case of Iran. So the idea that this was always the excuse of well, let's not sanction Russia because they'll always find a way around. We've been hearing that excuse for a very long time. You seem angry, Peter. I've never quite seen you like this. You've always been on the show before. Uh, and has this caught you? I mean, obviously, you've got a, a lot of personal stuff involved in this, too. But did this catch you by surprise? You never suggested this in all the times, even when we talked in D.C. a couple of months ago. Well, I mean, catch me by surprise. I mean, I, I live in D.C. And so obviously everybody around me has been talking about an, an invasion for three months while uh, and that was sort of like the hegemonic interpretation in D.C. among anybody with a security clearance. Obviously, all the Russian journalists, Ukrainian journalists, Ukrainian security services think, thought it wouldn't happen because it would be stupid, which it is. But he did the stupid thing. So I actually sat this one out. I mean, it's just it's that point where like, you're like, hold on, everybody in D.C. with security clearance is saying the same thing. So I, I, um, I, you know, I know what I don't know. And so I, I kind of sat that debate out on the, I just wrote about things I do understand, like culture and, and information. Am I angry? I am, I am ashamed, angry, beyond angry. I'm, I'm furious. Um, and I'm trying to focus that into actionable things. things but is your fury focused on the Western response, the, the Western policy over the last seven to 10 years? Or on Putin himself, or is it a mix? I don't know, Andrew. I, I haven't got to the point of disentangling those things. I mean... Um, well, there's some things yeah. you can do, and, and certainly you have a voice in Washington, D.C. And people so we know, we've, been, we've, been working with, I've been working with humanitarian organizations to get their voice elevated, creates, well, helps Ukrainian orgs uh, create something called the Kiev Declaration, Right, uh, you mentioned this actually. Yeah, yeah. So me. Tell me about the Kiev de Declaration. Well, basically, it's, it's 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 a bunch like around forty Ukrainian civil society groups who, you know, in the middle of bombardment, kind of like club together to sort of really sort of nail their top six demands that that are then communicated to the international NGOs and from then to policymakers. There's a lot of petitions out there, so the idea was just to kind of like focus what are the top demands that we really really need. And look, it's a moving target all the time. Um, so. It's always developing, but again, trying to like focus those energies. Um, and then, you know, I, I uh, you know, th th there's other things to do. Something I'm really focused on at the moment, I really care about a lot is, is how, you know, we talk about Putin's propaganda domestically. I mean, domestically, it's still very, very important what he's doing. Internationally, maybe less so, but, but domestically, you know, he's created a narrative which, which basically um, enables, you know, the mass slaughter of Ukrainians and, and war crimes. And it's pretty effective. But the really upsetting thing when you watch Russian TV, the propaganda itself is pretty shocking. Um, but the really upsetting thing is that it's funded by us. Western advertising funds Russian state TV. So you watch you know, these calls to mass slaughter and mass murder, and then you have chewing gum adverts and dishwasher adverts and all these adverts. And then you watch a bit more and you'll have Western entertainment products, which reel the viewers in so that they stay for the politics and all this is made and created on Western editing systems and, and mixing boards. So we fund, enable the war propaganda that is leading to mass murder of civilians. I think that can be changed. I think we can name and shame Western advertisers from doing that. It's slowly happening anyway, but it can happen much, much faster. And, and get uh, licenses from entertainment products revoked as quickly as possible and 
here we'd have to talk to somebody who's more technologically gifted, but how do you actually slow down the editing systems that all these programs are edited on? They usually need updates, for example, online updates. Can something be done about that? So, so we can do a lot to really kind of slow down the, the you know, Putin's hate machine. Um, and um, those are all very tangible, actionable things. Um, of course, the main thing at the moment, I mean, we've just had, uh, you know, there's an alleged ceasefire in the port city of Mariupol to allow civilians out, to take out the wounded and the sick. And unsurprisingly, it was quite classic Russian tactic. You say there's going to be a ceasefire and then you start bombing in the middle of it to hit civilians, something the Russians did a lot in Syria. So, you know, those kind of humanitarian outrages are happening every moment and of course they need yeah we did a show earlier this week with joby warwick a washington post reporter yeah the author of red line uh about syria as 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 the sort of dry run for ukraine um oh, i hope not i hope not i hope he doesn't dare uh go that far but he clearly is inching towards that um yeah i don't know <laughs> What about the some of the responses elsewhere? I saw a headline on, on Reuters this morning about pro-Russian Serbs marching in Belgrade. Um, you mentioned that the international dimension of this has some significance. Is that mm. what, what, what are your thoughts about pushing back on that? Or is it something that we just yeah. can't do much about? No, no, no. We sh I mean, so firstly, yes, Belgrade is really bad. Also, inside Hungary, Hungarian state TV is completely pro-Russian. Uh, Orban is playing his usual double game of being nice enough to the West so as not to get thrown out of Western institutions that fund him and yet being pro-Putin pro enough to for his own various venal needs. Um, so Hungary's a big problem. We don't really know what's going on in, in Central Europe. Um, what about also, Poland? Huh? Poland. Well, I mean, they're always anti-Russian. I mean, that's not... That's not yeah. But, uh, but we, we, we're limiting this to Europe and America. Uh, India holding out to the UN essentially being pro-Russian, largely because they buy a lot of weapons, like 70% of India's weapons come from Russia. Uh, China, obviously sitting on the fence. When you get to Latin America and the Middle East, very, very much pro-Russian. This is all about, Western, it's the whole line of, this is Western imperialism, blah, 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 blah. So you do have to think about the whole of the world. And the question then is, whose job is it to communicate with those countries and those publics? And the fact is that we don't actually have anyone to do that. Um, the U.S. used to have something called the U.S. Information Agency that used to make sure that like very basic public diplomacy happened across the world. Um, they don't have that anymore. They didn't really have a capacity or a capability to communicate with with publics across the world. So that is, you know, on the one hand, um, the U.S. did a very good job of kind of leaking the intelligence early in order to to prepare the world for what Russia is about to do. I thought that was a has turned out to be a very clever strategy. But in terms of that kind of sustained engagement with publics across the world, that's just not something anybody has a capability of. The Brits don't have one, the Americans don't have one, the Europeans certainly don't have one. Um, so that's something to think of a, as a big kind of, you know, defeat in this, in this conflict. Peter, you said that Ukraine, I'm quoting you here, is not about the Ukraine, it's about a broader Russian strategy. The chilling scenario, though, out of this for all Ukrainians is that the West rethinks its boundaries, takes a much harsher line, and essentially 
does a percentages deal as as Churchill and Roosevelt did with with Stalin after the Second World War and gives up Ukraine. Isn't that the most likely outcome of all this in geopolitical terms? I mean, I suspect there's plenty of people in DC who certainly among the sort of like DC intellectual classes who 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 are you know see the world in terms of great power politics who thought exactly that. Um, there is one small problem with that plan, and 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 that it's and that and that is because it is it is Putinist in its ideology in the sense that it doesn't take into account people, uh, and that people have volition, and the Ukrainians are proving every moment that even if Russia can occupy, um, they won't be able to hold it. So. Putin is doing a 1947 redux. He's doing something. He's pulled out an old manual from after the Second World War, where you go, where he went into Eastern Europe and you know basically put an iron curtain across it. Right. So that's what he's trying to do here. So he thinks he's back in Yalta, post Yalta, yeah. Um, so um, so so this is how he took over over Eastern Europe after the Second World War, and it's the same playbook. You go in, you put your, you decapitate the leadership. You take over the propaganda, you put in a puppet government, you execute, deport or and mass murder the opposition and basically everyone falls. It's the salami, the Stalin salami tactics, right? No, it's, it's making people into mincemeat tactics. But um, uh, <laughs> salami, whichever, whichever um, um, meat uh, product metaphor that you want to choose. But um, the problem is that there's two big problems. One... We live in a different world and Ukrainians just aren't having it. And his calculation was that, well, because people don't really exist for him. He's a conspiratorial minded person. So people are always just pawns moved across the chessboard. So the idea that normal people would not accept this just doesn't seem to have entered his calculation. And his military operation is a farce, partly because of that. The other reason that it's going so badly for him, um, or not as he planned, is that um, there is a disconnect between what he thinks he can do. He thinks he can be Stalin. He thinks he can go out and conquer Central European countries and create dictatorships. He thinks he can create a full dictatorship at home. But because the whole system is so rotten and corrupt and all the muscles mm. of the system are atrophied and all the, all the set of sinews and cartilages are eroded with corruption, he's like pressing a button and nothing's happening. So he's about to start dictatorship at home. Let's not forget about what's happening inside Russia. He's going full Stalin at home. Right. He doesn't have the capacity to do this. All the prisons in St. Petersburg are already overflowing. So he has this fantasy of playing out cosplay Stalin, but he doesn't actually have the capacity to do this. I mean, this is an old man, completely out of touch, not mad. He's completely rational in his sick worldview, but completely rational, um, but completely out of touch and not seeing evidence. He's been in charge for 22 years completely isolated, and and he's making bad decision after bad decision. So again, his fantasy is, is, is what you just said. Capture Ukraine, Moldova, maybe some of the Baltics to just prove to the world that NATO is a joke. And then, and then yeah, this new, this new Cold War, maybe. Um, there were plenty of people in DC who before this invasion were saying, Putin will take Ukraine in four days. So they believed Putin's own view of the world. But all these, you know, all these plans are great when you're a dictator sitting in his palace, moving figures around a risk board, but then they clash with reality. And and we'll see what wins. People, reality, um, desire, or a view of the world 
based on international relations textbooks and games of risk. Peter, you, um, you were interviewed uh, uh, by uh, Sean Ealing um, uh, in, on Vox, and, and, and um, they asked you whether you thought uh, Putin's ability to manufacture reality may have reached his limits in the Ukraine. You suggest it might have. There may be a, a hyper-reality, a real reality he's going to come to have to face. What happens if the Putin regime unravels? What happens if it if this starts going really badly for Putin? So then um, there will be a, well, change in Russia always comes through palace coups. Apart from 1917, there's always been palace coups, historically, um, in the Tsar time, in the, in, the, in the Russian Empire times and in the Soviet Union. So there'll be a, um, a palace coup led by um you know hawkish um hawkish people from the security service who think that what putin is doing is bad for the russian project and bad for russia and and they'll take over and they'll probably cut a deal around ukraine and and russia will be continue being an authoritarian place but maybe less so is that likely uh, do, do you get any sense that there is there are divisions now cracks within well, there's clearly cracks because there's leaks nonstop. You know, they're clearly like, you know, they're leaking left, right and center. They leak the plans of the invasion. You know, there's clearly stuff happening. There's clearly a lot of unhappy people. And also, what do you think? I mean, if you're an elite Russian security service guy, you spent the last 20 years building up a strategy of Russian power in the world based on integrating with the world and manipulating it, largely based around energy. Yeah. If the energy is, if that whole strategy of survival and keeping Russia punching above its weight starts to disintegrate, and it doesn't start really until oil and gas are touched. Um, and, uh, and if that strategy starts to disintegrate, it means your whole idea for, for Project Russia, which is a patriotic idea, this is not about banality, it may overlap with banality, but we're talking about patriotism here. Then this man who's making a series of bad decisions is, is bad for the country. And your duty as a patriotic, high-serving uh, security service officer is to ensure a change of regime. Um, so I think, I think I don't know. I mean, I have no idea, Andrew, but, but clearly there will be people thinking about this. And what about within the military itself, outside the security services? So the military never had any status in Russia. It's not like Turkey or Argentina where you have hunters. The military are, are put it this way, when, when a serious decision is made, the military are not in the room. Um, they've always been looked down on as, as the dogs, basically, of the system. So, however, they're the most popular bit of society. So you might want them on board. And should we stop deluding ourselves about street protests, about mothers demonstrating when sons get brought home in body bags? So sadly, soldiers' mothers are, are, the, are the most disempowered people in Russia, and it's a huge tragedy. But basically, if you didn't have the money to bribe your kid out of army service, that means you're, you're pretty vulnerable in Russian society. Uh, much more important is middle-class people. Middle-class people now are panicking because there's this sense that there's going to be a, mass, a, a general draft and, and wealthy kids will be drafted in. So everyone's trying to get their kids out of Russia. It's not even getting themselves out, it's getting my teenage son out of Russia. That's the big thing. And I don't, I'm not talking about these sort of elites, sort of Moscow, just the normal middle class people who had enough money to make sure to pay enough bribes to keep their kids out of the army, they're now panicking. 
um, all the questions I'm fielding from, from friends and friends of friends and friends of friends of friends in Russia is how do I get my son out? Uh, that can be more serious um, when, you know, the, the, the fundamental support for Putin is, is kind of a middle class um, who have apartments and mortgages and cars and holidays in Turkey. And they're very cynical about the world. They're very cynical about Putin. They're patriotic, by the way. They, they you know, they, they supported Crimea. But they also have personal motivations, which might now be clashing with Putin's personal motivations very strongly. That doesn't mean there'll be huge protests, by the way, necessarily, but it might incentivize the people who want to do the palace coups go, okay, there's serious dissatisfaction society. Let's go for it. Finally, I mean, Peter. Can I just say this is pure conjecture on my part? I have zero. No, I know. And, 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 and I appreciate you. I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, I know, but you you have as much idea as anyone. You you articulate your things very your, this view incredibly well, and uh, you you've been thinking about it for a long time, and uh, so it, it's important to have your voice out. I really appreciate you giving me half an hour of your time. I know you're very busy. Finally, Peter, we all care, of course, some more than others. Perhaps most of us not as much as you. Certainly, with people when you have family and friends on the front lines and being killed. Um, but people claim they care. They they wear their Ukrainian flags and all the rest of it. What can we actually do as ordinary people to so, to, I mean, to, uh, to, to fight to, 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 to deal with this? Hugh, this is a really weird war where you know on the, on the battleground it's Russia versus Ukraine. You know on the economic and political front. Sorry, I'm just choking on coffee. I've been I haven't slept much this last week, so I'm, I'm probably overdosing on caffeine. Um, so it's a weird war where, where everyone's involved. So, so the Ukrainian military first and foremost, but then um, just normal sort of economic warfare coming from the West. I'd like it to be much stronger, but it's clearly coming. And then ordinary civilians in the West who can help Ukrainians, firstly, morally, is incredibly important. Incredible. Don't underestimate how important crowds are coming out in Prague, in Tbilisi. It, it really is important. When you're on the ropes, knowing that people love you and see you, also gives you a sense of safety. If they're looking at us, it'll be harder for Russia to do atrocities. So being seen as, as a security thing as well. So don't underestimate that. I don't put that down. And I'm really encouraged by like all my friends have been writing to me who I really don't think most of them knew where Ukraine was on a map till this week. So how can they help? But there's also very concrete ways. I can post the Kiev Declaration. There's links to humanitarian NGOs, food, fuel, um, bandages. You know, there's, there's one million refugees. Um, all those things, calling for safe zones, which are not no-fly zones. Safe zones are humanitarian zones where, where there's no, where refugees can go without any bombing. That's a realistic thing to negotiate, sort of, with the Russians. Um, all the humanitarian corridors, all those things are things that can be petitioned for and supported. But but just give money. Give money. There's a, you know, there's really good, safe, proven, secure ways to give money to the Ukrainian army, Ukrainian civilians, Ukrainian hospitals, orphanages. People have been doing really creative things. They've been hiring out Airbnbs in Kiev and they're not going just to give people in Ukraine money to support them. So, so many things you can do and it's huge. It's huge. The support that's coming through morally and and kind of, you know, in, in real life as well is massive. So all of us are part of